2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast today. I have Ari from Simagon Inc. And uh, we're going to talk to him real quick. But uh, before we get to that, uh, remember donations are available and sponsorships for episodes are available. So if you're interested in that, the link for donations will be in the show notes. And, uh, additionally, if you'd like to, uh, sponsor episodes to get your name out there when you're not able to be on the show, uh, then feel free to contact us at info at Kodiakshack.com and, uh, we can get you uh, sponsoring episodes, uh, so you can talk to people. And now a word from our sponsor. Crowdbotics Defense is a data analytics software company serving the United States Air Force. They make it easy for active duty servicemen and women to turn their ideas into products and tag team DoD adoption. If you or someone you know has an idea for how tech can speed up your team, increase efficiency, or make your life easier, reach out to Crowdbotics Defense to talk it through. Crowdbotics Defense will help you to find your project scope timeline, and cost, and work with you to secure the budget you need to build it. Any product built and adopted by DoD will be credited to you as a collaborator. Reach out to julian at crowdbotics.com for help. That's Julian, J-U-L-I-A-N, at crowdbotics, C-R-O-W-D-B-O-T-I-C-S.com. Also, there will be a link in the show notes. Everybody I talk to in the DOD sees inefficiencies that could be streamlined or rectified with the hard work of software engineers and people in the United States Air Force. So work with CrowdBotics Defense to make a product that you are proud of and you're happy to work with. Uh, Today, we have Ari here to talk about the great work he's doing. So uh, Ari, thanks for being here and uh, tell us about yourself.
3: Thanks thanks Vader you're too kind going great work but yeah, we're definitely working hard doing what we can to support the warfighter uh, primarily right now working with the Air Force and Marine Corps and supporting our you know our big customers the uh, defense contractors on, on their big projects so I've been working at Simigon Inc for about 13 years now uh, started uh, as you know director of business development and eventually uh, moved up. Uh, to run the BD department. And now, uh, since the uh, merge slash acquisition by a company called Maxify Solutions, Inc., I run Simigot, Inc., so I'm responsible for the development and program management and BD side. So we're, we're lean and mean and, and obviously uh, working hard to grow. And, you know, the big space for us is really AR, VR, and, and also artificial intelligence.
2: Nice. So what in the AR, VR? So before we get into that, Kind of a brief overview. So, what's the difference between VR and AR? Just so our audience is kind of keeping up with us.
3: Yeah, so, virtual reality. That's uh, like you got your Oculus Quest, you know, Facebook Quest, what Meta Quest, excuse me. Um, you get you know all kinds of different headsets. Uh, they're more for you know depth perception and gaming. Very good, uh, very immersive. And there's different uh, different levels of let's say your fidelity or resolution. You know, there's the consumer grade. Uh, Quest is probably the, the most well known and most widely used. And there's higher end, like uh, the HTC Vive, uh, different suites that they have. And then there's uh, Valve has come out with uh, another with their own headset. And then there's super high end companies like Vario and X-Tile, uh that have their own headsets. You know, that I would say those are more for professional users versus you know you know buying one for yourself or for your kids uh, to play around in the house.
2: Yeah, and do you do you guys already have a set device that you're planning on operating off of?
3: No, so we're we're agnostic. So for us, you know, we don't we don't care what headset you want. You're the end user. You tell us which headset you prefer. If you're asking us which one we like, uh, in terms of VR, we like the we like working with the HP Reverb GT. But we have experience working with the others uh, as well. Uh, it's just that we we see that really good results and good good frame rates with uh, with that. You know, very crisp. Uh, resolution. Uh the AR side, I didn't address that question, so we'll circle back to that. Augmented reality is more like you have uh, superimposed graphics on top of, you know, real life, real world, uh, and on top of the real world period. And so an easy example to think of would be a uh, Pokemon Go game. And so that's, you know, geolocation, uh, the database that, you know, Pokemon is using, and then, you know, superimposing the Pokemon characters. On top of well, on top of New locations,
2: so yeah, that's I example remember
3: they are. So you remember yeah. that? And then there's yeah, the, re- oh, go and
2: ahead. Then
3: there's of course the high end stuff, you know, the expensive stuff. I don't know if we can curse on this podcast. Uh, try to avoid yeah, that. We,
2: we try to <laughs> limit it. Yeah. As <laughs> yeah, right,
3: So the expensive stuff and like more higher end. That's the uh, Hololens, the Microsoft Hololens, the IVAS program, and those are a lot more expensive. I wouldn't call them. Ready for prime time, uh, at least with the consumers. Uh, then there's, you know, Google Glass is another example of AR. Um, yeah, that's and then there's Apple that's coming out with their own headset very soon. We'll see how that's priced. But I think you see with big tech moving into AR and VR, I think you know, the space is just gonna blow up. Of course, we wanna ride on their coattails and you know, so we can't be locked into single single uh, manufacturer, OEM, you know, but there's different standards like OpenXR, SteamVR. And so as long as we support these standards and the OEMs are working, you know, uh, their headsets, their hardware to work off of these platforms, it should be no problem for the industry to keep up with it.
2: Yeah, I've had, I've had a little experience with uh, VR, looking at some goggles and and you can tell when, you know, a higher performing goggle versus a lower performing goggle. uh, And I feel like in my limited experience, a lot of it is in the periphery. So, kind of where your your the focal point of your eye, pretty much everything right. is pretty darn crisp. But uh, the right. the higher performing, the when you throttle up the performance of the goggle, when you kind of look into the edge of your vision, you still get a crisp image, and you're like, dang, that is that is right. a high performance machine we got here. The uh, right. one thing I it's haven't you're been able, for. to- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. One, you know, it's funny, and maybe a lot of my listeners. And Ari, maybe even you, you know, before you kind of get into space, you know, a lot of people probably assume like, we're going to buy the best thing that you can get. You know, it's like, cool, $15,000 AR, VR goggles, let's do it. And the the reality of like, you don't have endless funds, even though you're the DOD and you're the Air Force buying stuff, it's not like you just have a blank check. And a lot of times it's like, hey, we can't, we can't afford the, the best of the best. You know, we want the best of the middle of the road, you know? Okay. Uh, so. That's it's understandable, you know, because taxpayer dollars and stuff. So we don't want to just waste them. But at some point you want to make sure you get the fidelity and and the the training that you can get out of these. So as for uh semigon, so you guys are obviously building stuff to work on these. What are you guys creating uh to help and uh who are you creating it for?
3: So our our core business is military aviation training. So training for air crew and maintainers. So supporting you know, end users like yourself, different you know, fighter communities, F-16, F-15, C-130. Then uh, also uh, the same on the maintenance side, you know, fighters, just different aircraft, done uh, F-16, F-15, uh, de-icer technicians, and, and putting all that in the VR space where the depth perception matters. And, and you know, maybe jumping ahead of one of your topics. I think, yeah. th- I think it's important for industry to, to differentiate, like uh, where is VR bringing an added value and yeah, you know, so where do you need it? So if I'm, I'm a, if I'm providing maintenance training, and we're doing you know cockpit testing, there's no added value to put that in VR. But if you're training them, you know, pulling out LRU panels and you know, changing tires and you're in the wheel well, well then you know VR comes into play. There, there's added value. To it. If you're a, VI, uh, a deicer technician, you know, de-icing a KC-135, and you're 70 feet up in the air, and a boom, depth perception matters, right? So that's where you know VR. And MR or XR comes into play versus you know standard you know more traditional courseware, uh, courseware, courseware lessons.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, I've kind of briefly talked to before, but just the cost of some of these things that are already in place to use. So you know, for the F sixteen, they have uh, simulators that are multi million dollar simulators, and you need four people. In four multi-million-dollar simulators, all running together uh, to get some training. Sometimes, because you need 360 view. Because again, in fighters, you know you can look over your shoulder and everything's a big window. Uh, so you need that ability to look back behind you, uh, where VR provides that. It's just it's just on your face rather than like 18 different projector screens on there. Uh, right. So it's it's definitely the future. I think the the problem you run into as an end user with VR, which AR and XR kind of solves is as an end user, you can't see your real hands, you know, unless your hands are holding something or have some gloves that are in the VR space as well. You can't flip switches. You can't actually see your hands moving the real world switches. Uh, So I I believe, and then correct me if I'm wrong, that's where AR or XR can be uh, leveraged to have you, look out the window, it's the VR world, you look in the cockpit and it's the cockpit in your real hands, is that, is that accurate?
3: Yeah, uh, I agree. I think, like if you're talking about taxpayers and what makes sense, you know, it, maybe there's no replacement for domes uh, in the short term, but as you're looking, you know, you're looking at the amount of money spent to support these legacy systems with those you know, 360 degree domes, and as those start to become obsolete, you have to replace them, I think that's going to be a key point you know, the Air Force you know, has to be looking at, and not just Air Force, DOD in general. Um, maybe mixed reality, you know, you know, the XR stations, uh, headsets are, are the way to go. That doesn't mean you have to replace the cockpit because that's good and that's great. You know, Obviously, as an end user, you need a tactile feedback, true muscle memory. Um, so you don't have that limitation. And then you still have that 360 degree view with the headset on your face. You know, it's a, there's a trade-off. Is it a hundred percent? I don't know. Like that, that's where there has to be some more studying down, I think, by end users like yourself, right? What are we getting? What is the Delta? Uh, work with industry to, you know, close that Delta as much as you can. You know, then, that's, then that $15,000 headset makes a lot more sense over that, you know, one and a half million dollar dome.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I, I, maybe, maybe it's one and a half, maybe it's like 5 million, but uh, yeah, no that's what I'm saying. Like these numbers are large numbers, uh, when you're talking about these Sims and they're amazing Sims. I mean, these Sims, they connect you. It's like flying the real jet. Uh, but you know, it's technology that's been around for a while now. And a lot of it is struggling to have, to keep up, uh, with just updating, you know, cause it's projectors. So the fidelity kind of isn't always there, uh, because it's a projected image onto a screen. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it, it has its limitations and, and I agree. I think the VR, AR, XR kind of space is, is definitely the future. Um, so with that kind of, what is, what is one of the, cause we actually met a couple of weeks ago when we were going to do that, that webinar with Crowdbotics, which was, uh, which was pretty cool. I had a good time with that. Yeah. Um, shout out what, to Julian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Julian caps from CrowdBotics. He's a, uh, he's a good dude helping, helping the bros out. Uh, but what was, uh, you kind of had some screenshots for that. Uh, so can you kind of speak to the software that you're developing, um, that you kind of showed, uh, at the webinar?
3: Yeah. So we are talking about a F15, uh, E mixed reality simulation software we developed for the uh, fourth training squadron at Seymour Johnson. So originally, um, Squadron uh, was using DCS or P3D prepared. They didn't get the fidelity that they wanted, the training that they wanted, and so they put up this uh, RFP, first an RFI, then an RFP that we eventually won. Um, so providing high fidelity simulation software that went on the existing hardware that they already had purchased, like those you know, PTE style, sorry PTPTN style sleds. So you know we, we put we. used develop the software and a lot of ups and downs through that throughout that project. Um, you know, as the pro- project gained more and more velocity and you know, you get like, we're so close to the end. But then as you get closer to the end, it seems like sometimes that, you know, the gap between what the end user wants and what people are delivering it is, is bigger. We're we able to close that, you know, that, well, we're at the last mile, we're so close, but then, you know, it could be like this minor bug to us, but you know, to to the end user, you know, that's that's a big deal. We need to have that fixed. And so, you know, we, we definitely went the extra mile uh, working with the customer. The customer is great to us. You know, always uh, very accommodating. Um, I'd say a you know, tough customer, but obviously very fair and definitely uh, cooperating with us uh, as much as they could every step of the way. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was hard because of uh, just what was going on at that time, COVID and traveling. A um, um, you know, lot of, you know. Challenges at the time, like the, some of the technology, mixed reality stuff wasn't as mature as we would have wanted it. Us or the end user for that matter. We overcame it. Uh, but we look at it as, okay, uh, hey, this is an innovation program. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. that, we meet and that didn't meet, even exceed the scope of work. Yeah. Oh. Um, and then, it's you know, working together with the end user to take it to the next, you know, get to the next step. And, and that was yeah. the other thing that we talked about in that, podcast, uh, and that webinar with, uh, with you, Julian, uh, and Nick, uh, I was about
2: the value of that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's real. That's for sure. Real. <laughs> the, uh, that's real.
3: Yeah, it's definitely real.
2: Well, the, uh, one of the things that I, I feel like having been an end user and I can say this now because, uh, cause I think end users, they, they put in a lot of work and then they, what they end up doing is they keep see having more insight after writing the contract over right. time, so they're like, "Hey, but we want this too," and the problem is like you, it's it can't be a fully rolled out product; it's a min viable product. Right. So I think you know what the military members do sometimes is they get they're like, "Oh yeah, if we get this, it'll be perfect," and it's like it's not supposed to be perfect. You didn't pay for perfect, uh, and I think our problem is we are used to everything being a sunk cost. All it is is just increased effort and then we make better products or we don't. And so that's one of the situations where we can't put that upon the Cibber companies and say, hey, you we want you to go above and beyond just like we do to to make the best product. Because to be honest, like, again, we didn't we didn't buy the commercial product. We bought a MVP to demonstrate the ability to provide a commercial product uh, and I think people need to kind of keep that in uh, in the front of their mind.
3: I agree I think you know since then you know, I think some of those integrated some of the innovation funding has dried up a little bit um, at least in, on the on the sim side on the training side I think it is going back into DIU now uh, kind of in like a different way uh, maybe in different different types of programs but in terms of what you're saying about the MVP and you know everybody has having to understand what that means
2: 100% you're spot on yeah and I think I mean again nobody's doing it you know with intent. it's just they're like man right. we really love the product yeah. it'd be perfect if you did this so right. the uh, what, so to, to use AR to create AR or VR when you're doing that I mean if you're looking like in a Strike Eagle cockpit or something like that are you mapping the cockpit. So like a, like a laser mapped cockpit. So you know where everything is like, how do you create AR or XR uh, to work correctly? Cause this is kind of alien to me.
3: So for what we delivered was a mixed reality environment where um, the only physical controls were the flight controls themselves, stick, stick and throttle and pedals, everything else was virtual. So, but there was a sensor that we had on the headset Allow the pilots and wizzos to you know, use their fingers, use their you know, see their hands inside the simulation.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, so you're yeah. podcast, so you don't see it, guys. So you put your hands yeah. put your hands in front of your face, pretend you're pushing buttons, you know, MFDs, and you're flipping switches on on the side panels. So you had that ability. Now, was that perfect? Is that tactile feedback? No, um, but did the FTU students understand and, and get that? I'd say for sure, like. There's no tactile feedback. That is, uh, you know, that's what the, you know, it was never supposed to have tactile feedback, and you know, future versions can certainly support that. Um, so that's, you know, say the lower end of mixed reality where you're seeing your hands, um, and you're able to interact with uh, a virtual environment. Um, and then, say, the next level, um, again, and this is just a matter of budget, right? we got the, the money, then you can you know, put in the real cockpit, put in the real buttons, real switches, and, you're interacting with that. And the way you do that is through a process called masking. It's kind of like you have a cutout in this area where, you know, say in front of your center MFD, for example, it's a cutout, and you'll be able to see your hands interface with that, you know, with that center MFD. And so that's it, just, you know, kind of like the magic. And then look up, you know, you're seeing the, you know, the virtual environment. You're looking at inside that specific space where there's masking, then you're seeing the, the real world.
2: So the uh so do they have to wear gloves so they can see their hands in the virtual environment or like what are they using to so actually
3: if you want to if you're in the mixed reality environment you do not. In the virtual environment, if you want to see hands uh without any other kind of sensors, then yes, you would you would need gloves. Or I heard have... there's oh go ahead.
2: Right. Oh, I heard there's uh the bebop gloves, I think they're called, yeah. and it's a haptic Absolutely. feedback gloves. And right. I never saw them, but they sounded sick.
3: It, it's cool. Like um, uh, yeah, I love all the you know the new tech that's being developed. There's definitely a lot of you know a lot of use for it. Uh, you know, it's still, I, you know, I want to I don't want to say that the product isn't there yet. And I'm not talking about bebop specifically. I just I think there's a lot more work. To, let's put it this way: there's a lot more work to be done in convincing end users like yourself that. They're gonna say, you know what, sure, I'll wear those gloves in my simulator. Um, yeah. because you know, the, the biggest thing is like, no, man, we want to train the way we fly. So I want to see the iPad in my sim, and, and that's part of what we did in our in our mixed reality project. So we've got the iPad uh running in the headset. You don't need to take off your headset. You got your kneeboard yeah. inside the headset, you don't need to take it off to write things down, and you see everything inside, you know, just to like you know, basically again, trying to train the way you fly. Uh, there's no yeah, needle you don't have the same, you know, feeling of course, no vibrations and the speed and the G's.
2: Yeah. But the, uh, well, but visually. no SIM provides that. Right. Yeah. No SIM provides the speed and the G's and, uh, and that kind of just airplane feedback, you know, you get a little wind noise, but it's all obviously not real. Uh, right. there were, you know, I, I would like to think that I'm smart enough to have thought of this before, but I hadn't. So I was using VR and I was like, yeah, cool. You know, flying around. Cause we had like a stick and throttle, uh, And then I was like, Hey, I'll do a pattern. Perfect. And then I, I go to lower the gear and I like put my (laughs) hand to where the gear should be. And I was like, shoot, this is a, this is an unforeseen consequence, but those are the things that you kind of need to be able to, you know, if you really, like you said, train, like you fly XR, or like a really good VR space with some haptic feedback gloves uh, is, is going to be required. If you're truly going to replace a cockpit or just replace the sim bays, and you still have the cockpit sitting there. But you're now just sitting in a real uh, cockpit simulator, which has every switch that the jet would have. Um, and then you, like you said, you just have those cutouts. So all you my what I imagine is the the end state is at XR. You have all of your disp- displays in the cockpit is v, is VR images and displays from the fight you're in. And then all your hands, all your switches, everything is real world. And then you look out the window and then you see VR again. And it just seamlessly blends between each thing. Is that think, is that kind I, of the future of it?
3: I think so. I think we're getting there. And especially as more, say, consumer products in this space become available, you're talking about wearables, right? So you get your biometrics, but also the gloves that you like, you're ta- like what you're describing, you know, kind of like Jackets or suits, whatever body suits, VR suits. I mean, all this stuff is coming out. Um, Technology is getting better and better. Uh, Eventually, we're gonna, you know, us, some other companies will start integrating all these different items together to the point where it'll be like, all right, well, you're not putting on a fight suit, but you're putting on this like VR suit or XR suit, and it's gonna capture not just you know what you're doing inside the cockpit, but it's gonna capture your biometrics as well. And then you're talking, you know, like a huge, huge data dump, and seeing like, all right, what is this teaching us about flying? What is this teaching us like about good pilots, great pilots, average pilots? Um, and then compare them like with you know height tracking for example is a whole topic in and of itself, right? So what yeah. is a great what is a great pilot looking at? Um, can two great pilots be looking at you know two different things that you know kind of like the same same intervals? How does that work? So like, these are like studies that I'm sure Air Force has already. Uh, undertaken, uh, probably not not published, but things like this, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack just inside the eye tracking space, and I think that intersection with the simulation world is going to uh, continue to grow, and, and also with the other biometrics.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know normally in our in our classified spaces and simulators, you know, when when things are classified, uh, bringing in recording devices, bringing in cameras, all that stuff is is kind of a non-starter. Uh, so that's going to be one of the issues with XR or AR or, right. you know, like I recording stuff that is going to be an issue that they're going to have to, you know, overcome, you know, because right. it's, where's it made, right? Exactly. And, and that is an issue with a lot of the hardware right now, you know, software being built in different places or hardware being built and built in different places. it, it's pretty much a no go, you know, and it's like, well, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna start over. We saw that with a VR acquisition I did while I was on active duty. We pretty much just hit a brick wall and it put us back like eight months, uh, because it was like, Well, that's not happening. So figure out something else and we're like right. okay, well, there we go. Back to the drawing board. I think um I think that is is definitely the way to train people better and more efficiently in, you know, because you think if you can if you can put eight of these simulators where four live now, I mean that is that is a force multiplier. You know, you're going to save money. You're going to be able to get more training out of them, uh, and you're because a lot of times it's not that we don't have the ability to put sims. It's we don't have the space because it has to be a classified building. It has to be, you know, uh, certified and all this stuff. At some point, you just don't have enough buildings, big enough. And classified to store these things, so you're like, well, that's our, that's our limiting factor, which is a weird thing to limit you, you know
3: I mean, you, know, you can just build you know prefabs and you know shipping containers and spec it out and, and there are simulator centers that have that already. You know, like they're doing things like that. You see that in like Pendleton. It's kind of like how their whole simulation center is based on like prefabs and you know shipping containers and, yeah you know with everything modified inside. So, I mean, there's ways around it, but I understand there's, you know, obviously you got space constraints. Um, well,
2: it's, it's funny that you say that because some of the most innovative people uh, in the DOD, all they're doing, like their biggest innovations are just usurping the, the controlling entities. So like, I don't want to deal with com, so I'm just going to run commercial network to right. my building. Oh, I can't run commercial network because it's a CE owns the building and comm won't do it. Fine. I'll just build a crate that I'll put air conditioning in and we're just going to operate out of that. And right. it's like, wait, you're not, you're not fixing the problem. You're just going around the organizations that cause everyone else problems. And you're like, well, that's, I mean, it's good right. for you. It just doesn't help anyone else. Right. How does, uh. How does, so, because you said you're working with the Marines and with the Air Force, how is it working with the two different branches, just, uh, you know, Marines versus Air Force?
3: Uh, they're both, you know, Hey, the Air Force wanting, you know, what the Air Force wants the Air Force gets. It's no different with the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but as I think again, the key to all all, not just working with uh, DOD, but with any customer, any business, like to just make sure your requirements are defined up front. If you have the requirements to find out partner, it, it, makes things way easier for everyone. Cause just, you know, it could happen that you miss something, the customer missed something. If it's in black and white, it's on you. Uh, if it's missing then it's on the customer and then the customer needs to make a contract change, um, for us, you know, we try to accommodate the, the our customers. If it's like a half a day of work or like, all right, whatever, it's not even worth the, the time to go through the additional paperwork. Right. But if it's a big <laughs> scope change, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're still a commercial business. Um, you out kind of like a startup. And if you're a small business, you can't, you can't afford to take that on, take that hit by yourself.
2: Yeah, no, that's uh that's understandable. The, uh, so when you guys, uh, are in the space in innovation, working with other companies, are there, are there other companies that have been helpful kind of, you know, helped either shepherd you in good directions or have just been helpful to kind of get your name out there?
3: I'd say as long as we're not competing directly, usually, yeah, I mean, like obviously Julian, uh, a totally different space, but you know, is very involved in innovation. So, yeah, he's been he's been great. And some other simulation companies, like you know, like industry friends, well, you know, kind of tell each other what's happening. But there's, you know, we're competitors, so we're friendly, yeah. teams, co- whatever you want to call it. So we could be partners or 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 competitors. It just depends on the opportunity. If there's a chance to, to partner, I always prefer that. You know, yeah. a percentage of something is better than than nothing, and it just depends on you know. um I don't want to be I don't want to speak crudely, but you know, who has a bigger piece of work share depends on on whose on whose expertise is you know most relevant to the project. Who's bringing the project? Who's got the relationship with the customer? So these are things that you know you just have to work through with whoever you're whoever you're teaming with.
2: Yeah, and so that like makes an sense.
3: example like so. Uh, you want to ask something or you want me to get into this?
2: No, you're good. Yeah.
3: So this uh, new contract we're lined up to get, you know, it's a teaming agreement, you know, so we're not the prime, but a prime uh, has the past past performance and, uh, you know, has the experience working with this end user. We had no experience working with this end user. So it's kind of like they're bringing us in, uh, even though a lot of, you know, a good chunk of the work is, is you know, software related in our space. So... Yeah, that's just standard for our, for our business. You know, I don't care if we're a sub or not, or we're the prime, that makes no difference. We just want to, we just want to win and compete and help support the warfighter.
2: No. And, and as the end user, you know, I appreciate that. And it's, you know, I, I also appreciate, appreciate that there's a healthy amount of, uh, competitiveness, you know, I think, uh, do you ever play sports back in the day?
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, still, still do.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I I think there's something about that, that, that kind of killer instinct, if you will, in, in athletics, that it's like, Hey, like I want, I want to win. Like I want a challenge and I want to overcome it. And, you know, I kind of want to, I want to beat my adversary on their best day, you know, not their worst, just so they know that it's like, yep, I won. Uh, So that's good.
3: Definitely comes across in everything. Yeah. Uh, Sports, music, you know, used to play a lot of, you know, back in the day I was a, a metal drummer. I'm still a drummer but I'm not active, nice. uh, you know. But it's always like, yeah, you want to play better than the other bands on the same line, you know, on the bill and, uh, you want to win, you want to be the best. Um, yeah, what's your uh, what's your
2: favorite music to play? Like you said Heart, metal like music, any Yeah. Yeah, any specific like, band?
3: Yeah, shout out to Lamb of God for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah nice. My old uh, my old stuff. weapons officer, he uh, you know who weapons officers are?
3: Yeah, yeah, of course.
2: Yeah. So, my old weapons officer in uh, Masawa, he loved Lama God. He would be, he would just be cranking that up in the gym. Awesome. And I was like, Play that. I was, yeah, for the
3: yeah, gym. It's good. perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can, we can the, have another uh, podcast just on this, man.
2: <laughs> yeah, talking about music and stuff. Yeah. Well, the uh, it's funny you brought it up earlier and it just reminded me of this thing I saw. So, how, you know, we're going to get so much data capture, you know, whether it's with eye tracking, with our, you know, uh, biometrics. Uh, And I saw this video, I think it was on YouTube, but uh, I saw this video and it was um, how the Air Force was starting to uh, capture, like having pilots wear biometrics uh, when they go fly. And they were like, we're going to find out what like flying fighters does to the human body and, and what pulling G's does to the human. And then this was in like, the video looked like it was from like late nineties, early two thousands. And now I'm like, hmm, what happened to all that what information? The, I they, wonder yeah. if the Air Force didn't use it, or if it was if it showed bad things, and they were like, "Yeah, we don't want to talk about that anymore." Uh, yeah,
3: uh, yeah. There's definitely a lot of data that gets lost, and so there's obviously a way to improve managing the data, um, just making everyone aware. Like even you know, even on the commercial side, you know, you might have someone in your company, in your in your squadron, just. Know, saving everything to their local PC or laptop or you know, whatever, and it doesn't get, doesn't get disseminated, and it's just lost when that person moves out. Yeah, so, well, you know, there's
2: – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was, uh, I was talking with Stuart Wagner the other day, and he said exactly that, like this, we need to share, like we need to reward sharing of information because that's the only way we're going to have any useful stuff uh, come out of it. And uh, just kind of a random story, when I was at Masawa, they said, like, don't save, this is calm, don't save anything to your desktop, save everything to share drive, because if you save it to the desktop, it's going to slow down your computer. Well, then one year, the contract for the, the share drive is up, and we lose access to the data. And they're like, "Well, you should have saved it to your desktop. Should have backed it up." <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Gah!" I'm furious. Like this is yeah. ridiculous. Like, right, but yeah, they wouldn't was, let you, you just, get it
3: back. It's like just gone.
2: Well, we didn't have access because I think it was a contract where it was like a data lake or whatever, where you know it was stored elsewhere, and we would just like access it. And uh, yeah, we didn't have access to it anymore, and they wouldn't pay to get new, like to reaccess it. So all of your data, everything you wanted. Was just gone, so I I just like 2015 just lost everything I had from before, and it's like, well, it's one good way to clean house.
3: Um, yeah. How much was lost, man?
2: Well, it's crazy. So was- well, and like the the wild thing is, there's so much worthless data on on military networks. It's stuff from like early 2000s. You know, it's like 2006 Christmas party, and it's like yeah, we definitely well, need this. Like if we got rid of this, it archives that more
3: That's it, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's, what, it, that's what we would do. I like got certain at a certain point, just start archiving, freeing up space.
2: Yeah, and then you know, at some point, if like a document hasn't been opened in like five years, it's like, all right, you don't, you probably don't need it. But you know, some people they're they're hoarders of digital yeah. information.
3: Well, I mean, you, I'll save my personal photos. I think yeah, it's just, but I, you know, I'm not keeping that on the cloud forever. I'll put it on a, on a hard drive and leave it.
2: Yeah. How was, uh, how has it been kind of, cause, cause you don't have any kind of military background, right? I don't no. Yeah. So how was it kind of getting to experience the military in in your way, you know, going out to the bases, getting to talk with people, all that kind of stuff.
3: I, I love it. I enjoy it. Um, you know, I didn't, I think when I was a kid, just wasn't aware of a lot of different opportunities. And, you know, as I've grown up, of course, you know, just meeting more people, uh, has been, been, been great, you know, meeting all kinds of different people, different backgrounds, uh, but in general, going out to the bases is great. And yeah, see what's going on. And like this is, you know, how many thousand, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. This is their day to day, and this is what they're doing to, you know, help help keep, help keep our defense running. And you know, we're just, you know, small cogs in that machine of helping, you know, that whole ecosystem. But it's it's very cool. I like it. I mean, going out, you know, different bases, seeing, you know, obviously the jets take off, you know, tearing off. It's it's awesome.
2: Yeah, they take you out to some jets.
3: Yeah, it was, you know we're you know, working with 4Ts or at Randolph. I'm working on the you know T6 program. You're seeing T38s, T6. Obviously, not quite as exciting as the fighters, but it's still fun. I mean, even going out to Lockheed and uh, at near Fort Worth, you're know, in a meeting room and you're seeing you know F35s take off. I'm like, how awesome is that? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get old. You know, it's probably you know old, nothing for you, but you know, for us. They're the civilian side, it's it's always cool. Well, it's and funny because I, all, the whole team says the same thing. Like, oh, it was awesome. Look at that! It's just an F eighteen taking off.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because we, I, at least I, it never get old. Gets old for me. I'll literally like fly a jet, land, be walking back in the building, and someone will rip over top, still flying, and I'll like watch them too. I'm like, oh, sick. You know, it's right. just one of the things that you that I, I guess a lot of people may not realize is. You're just so busy while you're flying the airplane doing random things, especially when you're flying with students, that you you don't get to just sit back and enjoy it very often. Sometimes you do, uh, but there's a lot of times where you you get back on the ground and you can finally like stare up. You like uh, or what do you fly and and uh, what do you like to do when you are flying?
3: Uh, mainly uh, 172s, but I've flown uh, Cirrus SR22. I had one, I've got one hour in, uh, uh, was it the flying off from the, the Czech jet, the Trek training jet, uh, fuck, Aero Roticholi. you know what I'm talking about? The, the Czech no, I trainer jet.
0: Yeah.
3: I forgot the name of it. Yeah. So that, that was really cool. I mean, it's, it's fighter-like, it's not a fighter, it's a trainer, but it's like, you know, oh, yeah. rolls and, you can do roles and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the flying is great, you know, using in kind of like a different part of my brain, it's challenging and I definitely, you know, don't have a lot, you know, a few couple hundred hours, but it's got, to, it's a lot of prep work for me. Um, so yeah, you know, it's gotta be very focused and locked in and kind of like forget about everything else.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, you definitely have to compartmentalize, you know, flying pretty much any airplane. Yeah. Well, the uh when I was when I was at uh pilot training, I luckily I had some exposure on kind of learning how to learn and teaching people how to learn. Uh so I I kind of understood a little bit more um just about the undertaking, um which up until then I really hadn't had any like aggressive academic rigors. Uh but I realized that like hey, I can't just like sit in a chair in a room that's quiet and just like practice all of these things. Like I have to have a very dynamic environment. So what I would do is I would take a racquetball, and I would dribble it. So I'd first I had to like practice dribbling a racquetball because that is difficult. Uh, and then I would practice all my callouts and practice all my checklists while I was uh, bouncing the racquetball. Uh, be- and then I also have to uh, say all these call outs and do all these things, uh, to make sure that I can do both because I don't want, you know, you got to practice like you play. Uh, so you need to, like, I needed something taking my uh, brain power and still being able to do it. Uh, so I don't know if that did help, but, uh, but at least it gave me the confidence that it was helping. So maybe that by itself did something.
3: Yeah, there's definitely something to that. And, you know, obviously just getting just the the hours, you know, that, that experience, 10,000 hour concept yeah. Uh, from Malcolm Gladwell. I, I find a lot of, I don't, I don't know about you. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, it just makes sense. The more you do something, the better you get at it. It's, it's, you know, common sense.
2: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. The uh, Well, I know you've got a hard out in a couple minutes. So uh, so go ahead and tell people how to contact you uh, before we get going so they can reach out and, uh, and help increase our ecosystem.
3: Awesome, man. I appreciate it. So I'm going to give me, uh, hit hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also shoot me an email, uh, A R Y N at simigan.com. Also Romeo Yankee November at simigan.com.
2: And then, uh, I'll, I'll add his, uh, email to the, uh, show notes. So they will be at the bottom of the show notes if you're, uh, looking to reach out to him and then remember contact, uh, us at Vader at Kodiak shack.com. If you want to provide some feedback for the show, uh, or if you want to be on the show and then additionally, additionally donations are always open. And then, uh, and then, uh, you can also sponsor a show if you're interested, go to, uh, info at kodiak shack.com to email us for that and then check out our website kodiak shack.com are you
3: one oh yeah well, one last question you got to answer oh send where, it where, where does a vader call sign come from
2: yeah <laughs> well the uh I promise you've answered yeah i'll <laughs> give the uh so traditionally you hear you only hear fighter pilot call sign names or how they got them uh in the bar over a beverage. Uh, but I'll give the, uh, quick, uh, overview of it. So when I was young, I would, uh, key the mic before I was ready to communicate. Uh, so everybody else other than me would just hear. (laughs) And so that's how I ended up getting my uh, (laughs) call sign because I was, I wasn't ready to talk yet, but I was ready to push the button. Uh, so that was the bane of a lot of people's existence for a while. Um, Hopefully I've uh, rectified that. But good question though. Nice. All right, Ari. Thanks for uh thanks for being here. Yeah. I hope everything works out for you guys. All right,
3: hey, thanks for answering it. And we'll get hey, thank you. All right, bye. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Vader. Keep doing what you're doing.
0: Introducing WonderSuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone.